Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome to Salvation is from the Jews, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the completion, fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith. We have a very special guest for you today, and I look forward very much to introducing him in a moment and uh, having a discussion that I hope you'll find very interesting on the many places, some mysterious, some more obvious, in the Old Testament where we find Jesus, and in particular where we find Jesus perhaps even more compellingly in the original languages of the Old Testament in the underlying Hebrew and Aramaic than may be apparent in a translation. But before I bring him on, let me just take a brief moment and say that I will be appearing and speaking at several conferences later this summer, uh, one in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, the weekend of August 2nd to 4th, one in Winnipeg, Canada, the weekend of August 23rd to 25th, and then on uh, Saturday, September 21st in Washington, D.C. at the National Basilica of Immaculate Conception. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about these conferences, uh, the information about them uh, and all of my scheduled appearances and so forth can be found on my website, Salvation is from the Jews. The website is salvationisfromthejews.com on the upcoming talks and appearances page. Now, if you have been with us uh, for the last few weeks, you may recall that a few weeks ago I had a guest on the show. His name was Louis, who had a very exciting story. And, in fact, in that show he gave his witness testimony. And he was, in fact, a Jewish student in Israel studying to be a rabbi when the truth of who Jesus was, that is, the Jewish Messiah, became ever more apparent to him. And he looked into it, and he became convicted that, in fact, the Catholic Church is the continuation of Judaism after the coming of the Jewish Messiah, who was Jesus. And he now, I don't want to, um, I don't want to uh, remove the suspense by, by uh, announcing it prematurely, but now he is, in fact, has gone from studying to be a rabbi to having just entered seminary uh, in the hopes of one day uh, fulfilling the vocation to be a Catholic priest. Uh, if you were with us a few weeks ago for the show where he gave his witness testimony at the time, you'll recall that uh, we actually asked for prayers for correct discernment on his part about his vocation and the correct discernment on the part of the diocese about his vocation, that they would in fact admit him into the program for prospective priests. And they did. Thank you very much for your prayers. And um, perhaps he'll, he'll uh, mention that and, and say a few words about that incredibly exciting uh, juncture in his life where he's at now. So anyway, Louis, let me be one of the first to at least say Mazel Tov, if not one of the first to congratulate you on that wonderful um, uh, uh, step towards a ex very exciting future. Now, um, I, the, I don't know if you remember, if you were with us in that show, but he actually mentioned uh, at the time that one of the things that convicted him 
of the truth of Christianity and the truth of the Catholic Church was, in fact, when he started looking into Jesus in the Old Testament, in the original Hebrew and Aramaic, and finding some very mysterious, very exciting apparent references to Jesus that, in fact, confirmed that he was, in fact, the Messiah. So I invited him back today to uh, teach us a little bit more about the Old Testament in the underlying Hebrew and uh, to discuss some of those particular passages with us. So with that, by way of introduction, are, are you there, Louis? Yes, I am, Roy. Thank you so much. It's an honor and a privilege to be back with you. Well, I'm, I'm very happy that you were able to join us, and I'm very happy that our listeners will be able to uh, share some of your knowledge and, frankly, some of your excitement about the mysterious clues to Jesus that have been placed in the Old Testament, as, as I mentioned, perhaps more tellingly uh, in the original language than, than may be apparent in some of the modern translations. First of all, I, in my introduction, I, I mentioned the underlying um, Hebrew or Aramaic of the Old Testament. Uh, maybe just before we get started, you could mention what is that about? What's the difference between Hebrew and Aramaic and what parts of the Old Testament are in Hebrew and which are in Aramaic and doesn't matter and so forth? Uh, yeah, just quickly on that. Uh, the, the majority of the Old Testament was obviously written in Hebrew and or ancient biblical Hebrew. And um, but certain some of the books uh, that you'll find in the Old Testament, specifically Daniel, uh, if not the majority portions of it, you'll find in Aramaic. And um, Aramaic would have been, you know, the language of of the time for the the Jewish uh, community around the century before Jesus, during, and a little bit after Jesus as well. So that would have been what we call the lingua franca, or the way we speak English today. And, and maybe Latin in the Vatican, you know, so just to give some perspective on that, that that's where we're coming from. And it would have been, uh, Hebrew would have been a language used for religious purposes, presumably. Yes, specifically for religious purposes, for sanctifying, for speaking with authority, and, and that's key. Um, that's, that's something that's important to note as well, that when, when, when you speak with authority, you definitely did it with at least the Hebrew, at the very least. Okay. And Aramaic being more of the uh, common, everyday language that one would speak on the street? Yes, I would I, I would suggest that. Yeah, to keep it simple, yeah, I would say that. Okay. Great. Well, um, where would you like to start? Well, I mean, for me, one of the, the first things I had to tackle coming into the church was obviously the Trinity. And, and truly, from the grace of, of our Lord Jesus, I'm going back into the Hebrew and finding a lot of concepts and doctrines and dogmas of the church uh, confirmed within the Hebrew. So I'd like to start there, if that's okay. That's great. Okay, and so for me, I, I began to reread, and, and the best way to start is at the beginning. So let's go to the book of Genesis, and in the first verse, we see there that uh, at the beginning, God began to create. And the term for God there is the word Elohim. And that's important to note because Elohim takes the context of the creator or or the father aspect of God. And so there's always something you need to notice in the Hebrew is that 
certain terms for God will be used for certain actions that God is doing. And in this case, this term Elohim is prudent because God is now creating. He is the sustainer, the father. He is implementing a, a, a new creation. So that's important to note there. And as you move on to verse 2, you see that in some of the translations they'll say, and the wind from God was sweeping over the water. The Hebrew term there is ruach, which means wind, but we can also translate it to spirit with the capital S because just like the spirit, you may not see it, but like the wind, you see its aftermath and hence the word ruach, wind or spirit for, for God there. And, and the term being used there is that confirmation of that life-giving source. So God the Creator creates the world. His Spirit hovers over that creation and confirms that it is legitimate or kosher in that sense. And there's that confirmation. So there's already two aspects of the Trinity that we can see. There's God the Father and God the Spirit. If we go to chapter 2, verse 5 of, of Genesis, we, we now see the, a new title of God, which is that YHWH or that Yahweh that, that we tend to say now in, in, in the church or, or academics will use that term. And that is the majestic, the, the kingly version of, of God. And of the three titles there, this, this middle one, this middle majestic Yahweh or, or YHWH is the most tangible. And that's important again to note because Elohim is God the Father, but it's very abstract. And God the Spirit is also the Ruach, is God himself. But you don't see necessarily the Spirit, you only feel or see the aftermath of what that Spirit leaves. But here we have the King, the Majestic, the Prophet, the Messiah type of title for God. And so in order to, to defend that, that thesis there, um, I have the backing of Jewish tradition, but if that's not enough, if you want a New Testament uh, citation for that, you can look at the letter of St. Jude, chapter 1, verse 25, and we see there that St. Jude says the following, to the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Adonai, the capital L, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So you see there that St. Saint, uh, Saint Jude is confirming exactly what, I, what I'm saying about that middle name for God, that, that Lord, that Adonai. So hence, there's the Trinity within the first two chapters of Genesis and the creation of the world. So just to recap, we have Elohim, God the Father Creator, Adonai, the YHWH, the Yahweh aspect, the majestic prophet type of God, the tangible God, and the spirit, the Ruach. So that's what I saw, and that gave me consolation as I tackled that, you know, um, most mysterious aspect of, of our faith, the Trinity. Wow. Let me just uh, kind of back up and make sure I, I understand everything you're saying and also perhaps underline some of it. Um, first of all, there are several different names of God that are used in the Old Testament in the underlying Hebrew. Uh, there is Elohim, which is the first one which appears in Genesis, which is usually will be translated in a Bible as just God with a capital G. And then there is uh, the Yahweh or um, 
uh, I guess that's the best way to call it. Uh, it's also called a tetragamon because it's, it's four letters, and it's also a little bit of a delicate issue because uh, in in uh, the context of Judaism, it is the holy name of God which is not to be pronounced, which is one reason I'm being a little bit shy about about saying Yahweh, but I guess there's no way around it um, uh, for us. And um, that is the name of God which in a normal English Bible will appear as Lord in all capitals, capital L and then little capital O-R-D. And what you're saying, it sounds like, is that um, you find in the Old Testament that uh, the name Elohim for God captures the person of God in his personhood of the Father of the Most Holy Trinity, and that Yahweh seems to refer to God in the person of the Son of God, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. Is that right? That's correct, because of those three, that, that Yudhe that YW or YHWH, the Yahweh, is the most tangible of all the three. The other two are the most abstract in context. The middle one is the most tangible. And we see that when Jesus becomes the living word in human form, the living God. Hence that word, Lord with a capital L, Adonai. Great. And you also mentioned um, that Ruach appears from the very beginning of, of uh, Genesis and that that is translated very often as, as a, you know, a wind over the waters in that passage. But the Hebrew word Ruach is uh, simultaneously the word for spirit or wind or breath. So it captures that aspect of the Godhead. Exactly, and even in the Hebrew-speaking Catholic churches in Israel, obviously the name for the Holy Spirit is the Ruach HaKodesh, is the, the Holy Spirit. So that, that, that would be Spirit with a capital S. So I don't know which direction to take here, but I, I remember in speaking to you a little bit earlier that you found a, a very beautiful uh, kind of Christological suggestion again in the beginning of Genesis in verse 26 in in the in the verse where uh, as the English translation reads then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness in the underlying Hebrew uh, lying underneath the word image and the word lying underneath likeness do you want to talk a little bit about that oh most definitely because that's the next issue I had to tackle because this is the most constantly debated and infamous verse uh, that seems to separate Judaism I should say rabbinic Judaism from the complete Judaism. And as you said, yes, it, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And and the, the English is a little bit ambiguous there. Uh, we get a little bit more detail from the Hebrew. And the key words there for image and likeness are the following. God says, uh, let us make man. So let's tackle that word first. That the salmenu, our, our image comes from the word Selim, and Selim is an image of God, but again, it, it has the connotation of the abstract, kind of like a picture in a way, like you take a picture of a person, and yes, you see the person, but they're not tangible physically, you see that they're there, but it's obviously something different, you know what I mean? And so that's the connotation of, of Selim there, it's God's image, but something that is not tangible. But God continues right after the next word, and he says, 
hid motenu, in our likeness. And so the root there is, in English, it's likeness, and that's the translation. But the word in Hebrew is damut, and the root of that word, damut, is dam, dalid mem, or d and m, which create the word blood. But in order to have blood, what do you need? A body. So it's interesting how the writers of the Hebrew Bible here are either off the rocker in a sense that they're making a mistake here, or they're trying to tell us something that will come in the future, that we're made not only in God's spiritual image, but in, a, in essence, a physical image as well. And who embodies that physical image? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here's a foreshadowing looking at the Old Testament through the light and the eyes of Christ. So again, we have selem, the root word meaning image, but in abstract. And then we have damut from the root word blood, dam, meaning the physical aspect of God, confirming again the continuation of God in human form in our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if it would be too much of a stretch, but it occurs to me that if the underlying word there in Genesis 1.26 for likeness, when God says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, if that underlying word for likeness is built around the root of the word for blood, that is suggesting that the, in some sense, the likeness between God and man, the, um, uh, that, that blood is somehow a unifying factor between God and man. It's a factor that creates a likeness between God and man and unites God and man, which makes me think that in a funny kind of way, um, it reminds me of, frankly, that it was the, the blood of Christ that reunited God and man. Almost definitely, because this is part of the Jewish culture, as we see in the Old Testament period. Blood is the life source. It's, it's the root of, of the body that gives us life. Hence, we're, we're, we were told in the Old Testament laws not to consume blood, to be always cautious with the sacrifice and how you use the blood. And then we fast forward to the New Testament time for a century with Jesus, and he offers his blood like the sacrifice. This is my blood. It's not by coincidence. You can say the, the, the skeptics will say, ah, oh, what a coincidence. You're connecting things so conveniently. I, I don't think it's conveniently. I think it's meant, it's, it's built into the system. And that's the beauty of the Hebrew language is because I see the word, kidmotenu, but simultaneously as I'm reading, I'm seeing the, the minor constructs within the words itself and seeing the root. So that all together, I'm not just seeing likeness, but I'm saying I will make you in the image and the blood of my form. Well, wow, that's revolutionary because God just a second ago said in his abstract image and now a physical image. But where is that physical image? We don't see it to the first century with Jesus Christ. And, and the, it is the um, likeness created by blood in some sense, which will... Um, make man, remake man in the image of God, that being the blood that Jesus shed for us, which actually enabled us to recapture our likeness to God. Oh, most definitely. And, and I mean, as you see in, in chapter 5, Adam continues his line in the same way that God creates. God, uh, Adam uh, has his son Seth, and in the same way, God, uh, Adam creates Seth in his likeness and in his 
image in his Salem and Damut in his in his blood form. So that when Seth is born, he has his father's spiritual image, which comes from his father, who is God, but Adam's physical likeness, his body and blood. So that ultimately we we are confirmed by the New Testament that says, ultimately, because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, we are all children of God. We've come full circle. And we're getting these little hints and foreshadowings as we go along in the Hebrew. It's not by mistake. Wow. That's really beautiful that that it's it's blood it's blood that remakes us in the image of god and that was the blood of jesus and that's already kind of hinted at in the beginning of genesis it's really beautiful um as long as we're we're talking or we spoke a few moments ago about about the names of god i know that one of the uh more mysterious and more well-known places where in some sense God gives us his name and and uh, provides a name for himself is that passage in Exodus 3:14 where after Moses um asks God, you know, who should I say sent me and God answers how how he should be identified. Can you talk a little bit about the the Hebrew underlying that uh self-identification or name of God when God said to Moses, I think very often is translated I am who am. Yes, and that's this is one of the hardest ones to kind of explain or to translate. In this case, this is one one of the few times where you either know the language or you don't, but I'll do my very best to explain it. What the words that we're seeing there is Ehie Asher Ehie. So he tells Moses to say that I am what I am. But what's interesting is that this word Ehie Asher Ehie is is almost like a, not just a title, but a state of being. Because you're seeing here that future tense in a way. It's 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 interesting. The grammar there is, is almost comprising of both future, present, and past simultaneously. is literally saying in a way, go and tell them, I am, I was, and will be, and continue to become. So in a way he's saying uh i i am who am who always was and who always will be amen and you know there's something else about that um that struck me very deeply which is i apologize if it's going to be a little bit a little bit heavy to explain but um in uh, saint thomas talks a lot in in the summa about about god being non-contingent being that one of the proofs of god's existence is that uh, if existence, well, um, behind existence there has to be a first cause. Uh, behind the chain of causality there has to be a first cause. Uh, behind anything that moves, anything that, that, uh, changes state, there has to be a prime mover. There has to be something lying behind everything. That everything that exists, um, might have existed or might not have existed. If that's the case, then there must be something which exists that had to exist, that could never have not existed. And that is referred to in philosophy as non-contingent being. It's not contingent. It had to be. Everything else is contingent being. It could have been or it could not have been. And in a way, this line in Exodus 3.14 where God says, I am who am, sounds to me like God is almost saying, I am non-contingent being. I am the existence that had to exist that could not have not existed, 
that always existed and always will exist and by by nature must always have existed. Anyway, I hope that's not too much of a digression, but it was very exciting to me to to see the reflection of of that uh, kind of philosophical truth uh, already in this in this Hebrew statement. Oh, that, that, I couldn't have said it any better. And this is what frustrates me about the skeptics and the academics who will belittle the writers of the Bible, whether you think it's Moses on the traditional sense or however the academics explain it. Either way, they are discussing very deep stuff for their presumed education of their location and time period. So I'm impressed. They're either di- they're divinely inspired or they're off the rocker. I'm going to lean on divine inspired. Great. Now, uh, we will in a few moments uh, be taking a break, as we usually do, but um, let's at least cover one more or, or address one more of these beautiful kind of, you know, Christological hints uh, in the underlying Hebrew in the Old Testament. Maybe uh, since we've started with Genesis, and of course Genesis is the beginning, uh, the Hebrew word for the book of Genesis being quite literally in the beginning, Breshit, uh, it's a little bit of an aside, but the uh, the Torah, the names of the books are the first words that appear in that particular book is used as the name of the book. And the very first words that appear in the book of Genesis is in the beginning. So the Hebrew name for the book of Genesis is Breshit, or in the beginning. So since we start in the beginning, what about, um, and uh, because one can never talk too much about the Blessed Virgin Mary, and we've been speaking for already almost 20 minutes and didn't mention the Blessed Virgin Mary, for which I apologize, um, why don't we talk a little bit about Genesis 3.15 and that um, mysterious allusion uh, to the Blessed Virgin Mary? Yes, okay, great. That's, that's another issue I had to tackle as well. And and here, most often, the the skeptics will say, well, obviously, this is, if we're even taking the story truthfully, this has got to be about Eve. And and I'm going to argue that it, 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 it mentions maybe perhaps her, but the underlying issue is not really her, because we understand that Eve later has children. This is oh, something else. Uh, let me, let me, I'm sorry, let me inter- interrupt you, because uh, I was, I was careless. I did not actually read the verses. And it's probably unfair to just kind of say Genesis 3.15 and, and not, and not yeah, give the opinion, citation. I take it for granted that people know what I'm talking about, but go ahead. Yes. But so let me just read. I guess I'll start with Genesis 3.14. This is after God has caught Adam and Eve um, eating the fruit in the Garden of Eden and so forth and accuses them of it, uh, starting with verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what we're talking about specifically is that verse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'm sorry to have interrupted, but... No, 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 of course. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. I take it for granted and my apologies. Um, The key word here in in this verse is the word seed. And uh, so God is saying to the serpent in Hebrew, zar acha, to the serpent. And then he says to the serpent about the woman, uvein Zar'ah, so the same word coming from the, the root word, Zain Ein Dresh, which would be the equivalent of 
Z, R, and then let's just put X because there's actually no letter for that in English. And so what's going on here is that that root word in translation, yes, means seed or offspring, but in reality, the root means sperm. And to the Hebrew reader, grammatically and even specifically culturally, when you see that word zara'ah, referring to the woman, your eyebrows should rise because that's something odd there. Of all the possible words to say about a woman's child, they chose this word which culturally and even biologically seems not to fit because the word means sperm. And obviously a woman does not produce sperm and cannot impregnate herself with her own sperm. So that begins to raise the question as to how is this possible and what does this mean? Because we know Eve later, in a few verses later, in a chapter or so, has a child with Adam. And obviously this is not specifically about Eve. It's got to be about something that will happen in the future. And that's the key word is offspring and seed, which in reality means sperm. And the Septuagint is actually more loyal to the Hebrew, the Greek version of the Old Testament, because they'll use the word spermatos, which really should raise your eye if you know Greek because there's no way a woman can produce the sperm. And how can this be possible? In Jewish tradition, the word itself, zar'ah, is spelled zain reish ein he, which would be the equivalent of z-r-x-h. And the h comes from the holy name of God, yud he vav he, or y-h-w-h. So that h is always that spiritual, life-giving aspect of God. When you say hallelujah, Yah, Yah is the name of God, and you hear that breath at the end, Yah. So what I'm suggesting is that in order to make this word, Zara'ah, make sense to fit the context, you have to add that H, that God aspect into the word, and there's your miracle. That's how the woman is able to produce a child from her own sperm. When God, that H, is brought into the word to complete the word to pronounce does that make sense? Uh, it does make sense. Let me see if I can kind of recap it. First of all, the word here when um, the, the passage says between your seed and her seed, that word seed refers to a contribution to reproduction which can only come from the male partner in the reproduction. So it wouldn't make any sense to be saying her seed if there was a male contributor to the offspring, so to speak, to the reproduction. So here we already have an allusion to the virginal conception of Jesus in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, because obviously there was no um, contributor, there was no male contributor of seed. So it is not as incorrect, so to speak, to refer to Jesus as the seed of Mary as it would be in any normal conception. And then furthermore, if you turn around and say, where is, who is the contributor of this seed? You have pointed out a little bit, uh, if I may say so, a little bit of a deeper, more mystical suggestion, which is that the final letter of the Hebrew word for her seed is a, is a letter, is a sound that's very much associated with the name of God. So it kind of mystically is, is suggesting that the contributor of that seed, which is her seed, which she would not have in her own nature as a woman, is coming from God himself. 
as we say in Hebrew, vidyuk, exactly. You hit it right on the point. I couldn't have said it better. Well, you did say it. I just tried to kind of uh, <laughs> recap. Anyway, uh, maybe that's a good time. I, I know that my brain is already um, threatening to blow a fuse. So maybe this is a good time to take a short break uh, with a little musical interlude and uh, then continue in the second half of the show with as many more of these beautiful Christological references as we have time for, uh, beautiful Christological references in the Old Testament, which are particularly deeply illumined uh, through the underlying Hebrew. So if you've just joined us, if you've joined us in the course of the last 20 minutes or so, this is Salvation is from the Jews on Radio Maria. Our guest today, I'm your host, Roy Shoman. Our guest is um, a new friend of mine, Louis Perez, who is a who had been a rabbinical student studying to be a rabbi, Jewish, in Israel, when he found the truth of Jesus, in part through these beautiful references to Jesus in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. And now, uh, please God, seems to be on his way to becoming a Catholic priest. So with that, let's uh, take a musical break, and we'll be back with you in two or three minutes. Thanks for joining us. Hi. This is Roy Shoman, and welcome back to Salvation is from the Jews on Radio Maria, where we celebrate the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith. And if you have just joined us, we're here speaking with a very exciting guest this week, Louis Perez, who is who was a rabbinic student in Israel, Jewish, when he came to the truth that, uh, in fact, Jesus is, was, and always will be the Jewish Messiah. And the Catholic Church is, in fact, the continuation of Judaism after the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And the best and most legitimate way to be a Jewish rabbi is to be a Catholic priest. So that seems to be the direction he's heading to. Uh, through the grace of God, he will be entering, beginning his uh, uh, seminary training uh, in, at the end of this summer. On his way, if it's God's will, and um, uh, if he's faithful to the call and correct in discerning the vocational call, on his way to the Catholic priesthood. So what better guest could we have to take us through some of the mysterious appearances of Jesus in the Hebrew of the Old Testament? So welcome back. Welcome back, Louis. Thank you so much, Roy. And so let's just launch forward with uh, with the next interesting uh, occurrence of a kind of veiled Jesus in the Old Testament that you want to share with us. What would that be? That would be in the book of Isaiah, and I'm, I know there's plenty of references about the Messiah in Isaiah, but I want to take on one that uh, kind of gets skipped over simply because of, I don't want to say the mistake of, or, or mistranslation, but, uh, but definitely not a, a translation that's not loyal to the Hebrew, and that's, that's what we're going to find in Isaiah chapter 11. And just to give some contextual synopsis here, chapter 11 is talking about um, how the Messiah will come from the line of Jesse, which is obviously the, the father of David, talking about that messianic line. And chapter 11 goes on about how that descendant of, of David will come from Jesse and will have all this wisdom and the spirit will be upon him, etc., etc. And then we get to verse 11. And this is something I found very interesting because I never realized this before. In the few times that I did read the prophets as, as a rabbinic Jew, I never really looked at this section until very recently in the last six months. And I was shocked. So let's look at, at verse 11. In, in my translation here, 
I have it saying in English, in that day my Lord will apply his hand again to redeem the part of his people. So it's it's a good translation, but it leaves you without thinking about what the, the Hebrew actually says. So let's look at the Hebrew. And the Hebrew says, In that day, God will continue or to supplement his hand, the key word there is shenit, which means, which means the second time. So now the question is raised the second time. Well, when was the first time? Because constantly the mantra in rabbinic Judaism is that if the Messiah dies before he completes whatever the ramifications or specifications are for the fulfillment of the Messiah, if he dies before that, he's no longer the Messiah and was not true. And yet we have Isaiah saying, in that day, God will extend his hand again, Shanit, a second time. So there again, my eyebrow was raised because the English and even the Catholic translations, because I'm reading from a Jewish translation into the English, but even the Catholic translations are not even loyal to the Hebrew. And the Catholic Church should really take advantage of that because here is a very specific Without having to go into deep mystical theologies or anything, the Hebrew itself is clear as crystal. Well, let me, there will be a second opportunity. Let me okay. uh, rewind a little bit. Let me first of all read that uh, verse and perhaps the following verse from the Revised Standard Version, which is one of the um, more literal Catholic uh, translations of the Old Testament. So starting with verse 11, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time, to recover the remnant which is left of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Ethiopia, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise an ensign for the nations, and he will assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So I think that what you're saying is, um, if it says very explicitly that in that day the Lord will extend his hand a second time, to regather the remnant of Israel or whatever, if they're referring to a second time, when was the first time? Yes, because that whole chapter is about the Messiah. If you start from the beginning, it talks about the shoot and the and the stump of Jesse. So that's talking about the line of the Messiah and the Messiah himself. So and the Messiah he, extends his hand a second time. He must have extended his hand, uh, his hand a first time. So the second time is this ingathering that's kind of a, a picture of the second coming. There must have been a first coming. Exactly. That, that's what left me to think. And, and that translation, if that's what it actually says, you have a very good one, and, and I applaud them for translating it that way, because that is specific, and, that's, and, and we should be using that in the church. We should be using that in our evangelization as we speak to other Catholics and non-Catholics, that look, the prophet Isaiah is talking about this, he's foreshadowing. He's not talking about himself. He's not talking about what's going to happen in the next 50 years or 60 years or the next year within his time. This is something that will come to be in the future. So when, not a, there it is. So when you were a eager young rabbinical student in Israel, did you ever bring this up with your professors or rabbi teachers? No, because unfortunately we skipped the prophets on purpose. Our emphasis is just to, to study the Talmudic traditions and the oral traditions so that we can implement the laws. But now as I look back, I'm not saying that they don't study the prophets, 
But I would I would dare to say, if I may, I believe they skipped these parts on purpose, and I see now why. Uh, I do remember that in the um, in the in the readings in the cycle of readings in the Jewish synagogue service, some of the most tellingly Christological passages in the prophets um, are not in the cycle of readings, right? Like Isaiah fifty three and so forth. On purpose. On purpose. Uh, certainly suspicious, certainly suggestive um, that they might have been left out because it's kind of hard to read them and not think of Jesus. There's actually a, a funny story. There's a very big Messianic Jewish rabbi, uh, uh, excuse me, Jewish leader, Sid Roth, who when he came to faith in Jesus uh, and he wanted to t- show his father that Jesus was in fact the Jewish Messiah, he brought him a copy of the Old Testament and was reading Isaiah 53. And um, and his father immediately assumed that it was a Christian Bible and a mistranslation. And he said, the father yelled at him, you know, that must be wrong. That's a, you know, terrible Bible. Where did you get that Bible? Assuming it was a Christian Bible. And uh, it was, in fact, a Jewish Bible. And Sid Roth said, I, I got it from a rabbi. And his father's response was, I never trusted that rabbi. <laughs> so... Um, so, you know, maybe maybe it's true. Maybe they those are left out of the cycle of readings because it's impossible to read Isaiah 53 and, and not see the story of, of Jesus in there. Um, great. Well, um, you know, we're talking about the um, the Old Testament and, we're, and the New Testament and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And I think you had a verse that talked explicitly about a coming of a New Testament. Is that true? Yes, and, and all the verses that I'm mentioning are ones that affected my conversion and sometimes not specifically talked about so thoroughly um, or kind of skipped over because sometimes the translations are not loyal. And the next one would have been in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, but the ones I really want to look at is definitely chapter uh, verse 31. And and there we see in... In the Hebrew, we have Hine Yamim Ba'im Neum Adonai, and in these coming days, God declares, Becharti et Beit Israel ve'et Beit Yehuda, and I am writing unto the tribes of Israel and Judah, Brit Chadasha, a new covenant. Lo Chabrit Asher Karati et Avotam, not like the covenant that I established originally with your fathers, your ancestors. I first read this just on the surface level, without having to go deeper, blew my mind away. I, I heard this for a first time in the church when I was initially coming back into it last year, and it shocked me because I heard this in one of the first readings, uh, one of the weeks before Holy Week, and I said, wow, this sounds like the New Testament, but wait a minute, it's from Jeremiah. I went specifically back to the Hebrew Bible after that Mass, read it, and I could not believe it. Brit Chadasha, and even in Israel today, to even announce Brit Chadasha, it's like uh, taboo, and yet it's written, very, it's written there in the Hebrew, I don't know how many centuries before Christ. It, it, it's amazing that it's there. The so, Hebrew completely. hold on, just because, um, just, just so it's clear to our listeners, that phrase Brit Chadasha, which appears in Jeremiah 31.31, is Hebrew, is the Hebrew translation of, quote, New Testament, plain and simple. Plain and simple. And verse 32 confirms it. It's not a covenant that I wrote with your forefathers. And God goes on to say how it will be a covenant that will be established in your heart and you will just know it, etc., etc. 
But the key there is Brit Chadasha, a new covenant. I'm, I'm, I'm revamping the, the old one. I'm giving you something new. Something that is not imposing, but something that you will feel and through faith get confirmation. This is revolutionary. And this is centuries, at least four or five centuries before the coming of Christ. So this, Amazing. there's sort of an explicit, well, not sort of, there's truly an explicit reference to the, uh, to the New Testament in the Old Testament where God promises that he will give his people a New Testament, right? I mean, of course, I don't know how much more clear you would like it, and the Hebrew makes it very clear. There's no mistaking it, even um, just on the surface level. Let me read. Let me read a couple of those verses because there's another. Uh, I'll make clear after I read them why. But there's a very explicit uh, kind of description of the transition between Judaism and Christianity when God is talking about replacing the Old Testament with the New Testament. So let me uh, quickly read those verses, Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34. Again, the Revised Standard Version. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. End of the passage. Um, I'm saying this because that, that phrase, I will put my law within them and write it upon their hearts, is echoed in the New Testament uh, in the discussion of replacing the law written on tablets of stone with the law written in man's heart with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so this verse is, is an explicit reference of the to the transformation between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and the law written on tablets of stone, the the law of the Old Covenant, which was given to Moses, and the working of the Holy Spirit in man's heart, which will teach every individual the law from within, and this mirroring of the Old Covenant and New Covenant, and the law given to Moses and the law of the Holy Spirit written on the heart is even reflected in the liturgical calendar. I apologize for the digression because the feast of Pentecost, which in the Catholic Church, of course, is the feast of the giving of the Holy Spirit, falls on exactly the same day, 50 days after Easter, 50 days after Passover on the Jewish calendar, is the festival celebrating the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So this transformation of the old law into the new law, the old covenant into the new covenant, which is in Jeremiah, is just is just like central, and it's there, as you point out, in, in black and white in the words of Jeremiah. And I'll even add that um, Jeremiah is echoing uh, the first reading for this Sunday, as we see when Moses is telling the Israelites in relation to the law and how God can affect them. He tells them, don't look to the sky, don't look to the seas. But look within yourself. That is where God is going to be. And Jeremiah is echoing the Torah from Moses centuries before that. You know, so it's 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 a continuation and a and a foreshadowing of the prophecy of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I'm sure that you'll be with me on this, but I know that as a 
Jew growing up, I just wished and yearned for an ability to really know God. And, and like it says here, I mean, I was asking my neighbor, I was asking my brother, I was asking my rabbi, I was asking everyone, you know, out of this desire to know God, to have a relationship with God, sort of tell me about God. And like, like it says here, I mean, you won't have to ask anybody. I, I, I mean, I would have, I would have given both my arms, never mind my right arm for the knowledge of God and the, the personal relationship with God, which comes from the New Covenant, the New Testament, right? Yes, and, and exactly. And, and God says you will know it because of the grace that he offers you, the chesed, the mercy and the grace that he offers you in order to be enlightened to see that notion that is being written here and confirmed with Jesus Christ. Amazing. The Hebrew is completely there. The church should take more advantage of the language. It, it's amazing. It confirms all our doctrines and dogmas. Well, maybe we need more Catholic priests who once were Israeli rabbinical students, huh? Or <laughs> Well, you don't need to be Jewish or Israeli, but I, I would hope that seminarians, if they're listening to our show now, that, that they consider to take more Hebrew. And That's... it's interesting. I already have like a, a list of students that I haven't even met yet that heard that I'm coming to the seminary and I'm going I'm to be tutoring them. And I hope, I hope to God that they take the language very seriously because it will help their Catholic dogmas and theology and teachings. It's amazing. Wow. Anyway, I think we only have time for one more, and I think that should probably be from uh, Daniel. So why don't you just go ahead in the last few minutes and, and talk about the Son of God and Daniel. Yes, let's look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, at least in my version, so it should be almost the same in yours. And here, to give, again, some contextual history, we have King Nebuchadnezzar, who is about to throw in three of Daniel's uh, compatriots into this fire, correct? And as they're being presumably consumed by this fire, which is actually not eating them up, or burning them, I should say, uh, Nebuchadnezzar announces that there's a fourth person. And he says that, at least in this uh, Jewish version, they translate it as, it is, uh, it, the fourth looks like a divine being. Totally way off from what the Aramaic is actually saying. What, what uh, Nebuchadnezzar says in the Aramaic is the following. The fourth one, and here we have that word dam again, from the Hebrew into the Aramaic. Dame, in the bodily form, Levar, in the, as the son, Elohim, of God. No mistake there. That, and, and, and I've had this conversation with other Jews and, and skeptics and rabbis, and I say, it says here, the son of God, and they're saying, no, 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 the Elohim there is, is the pagan gods. And I say, no, if this is Elohim, which is the Aramaic equivalent of Elohim in Genesis, and there it's plural as well in Hebrew as it is in Aramaic, and we say it's singular, we must be consistent. After that, the rabbis tell me, we're done. I don't want to discuss this matter any further. Okay, so let me just uh, underline this. So this is the passage where the, uh, the three young men faithful to the true God are thrown into the fiery furnace by the you know, evil King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to be burned to death, and it's, and uh, then Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, and of course his servants who were lighting the fire were burned up just by being too close to the furnace, but he sees not only those three virtuous young men walking unharmed in the fire, 
But a fourth young man who, uh, depending on the translation, looks like an angel or something like that. But you're saying that the underlying Hebrew, in fact, says that that fourth young man is in the body of this son of God, and that that strongly suggests that it is, in fact, the son of God, that as Jesus saves us, and in fact saves us from the ultimate fire, saves us from hell, it was an appearance of the son of God, in the flesh, in the blood, as you point out, that the, the word blood is hidden in there too, who saved the three young men in the fiery furnace. Exactly. And to add to this, it's not, it's not just a prophecy of Jesus, but a prophecy of how the Gentile world would recognize Christ. How do I say this? Because Nebuchadnezzar is obviously a Gentile, and he announces, Elohim. The fourth is literally the son of God. How amazing that there's that connection. The Gentile king announces and recognizes that he is the son of God. Much like Pontius Pilate uh, conversing with Caiaphas says, no, I have written that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And that the Gentiles later, after Paul goes out into the world, accept Christ and recognize him as the son of God. Amen to that? That's all I can Wow. I can this, there it is. What else can I say? Wow, that's beautiful. And I, uh, maybe, uh, maybe we'll actually have a chance to have you back and have, go through another five or six of these, these uh, beautiful illuminations of uh, Jesus in the Jewish scriptures in the underlying Hebrew. Let me just, uh, I, I hate to say this, I mean, we've come to the end of our time. It's always a sad moment. Um, it's very, very beautiful to see how a knowledge of Judaism and a knowledge of uh, Hebrew just serves to confirm the Catholic faith and to confirm the truths of the Catholic faith and how, how blessed apologetics would be. And simply, simply an explanation of the Catholic faith would be uh, if it can be done with a deep understanding of the Jewish roots and of the Jewish language. So I want to wish you, and I hope on the part of all our listeners, um, tremendous success in uh, your pursuit of your vocation. Let me invite the listeners uh, we, we don't ask for contributions explicitly on this program. I will ask for a contribution. If all of our listeners could say one Hail Mary after the show for the fruitful fulfillment of Louis' uh, uh, vocation. And so, uh, I don't know if you have a final word or a, a goodbye for us, Louis. And if you don't, I'll just ask you to chant the Hail Mary again in Hebrew. Of course, just again, just to reiterate what you say, thank you so much for all the listeners for your prayers and continued support. Uh, it's just the beginning of the journey, so I still continue to ask for your prayers. And God willing, uh, God, Jesus, our Lord, will find me worthy to represent him here on earth as a priest and to serve all of you. And here is the following, the Hail Mary. Shalom lach Miriam, meleat hachesem, Adonai himach, meruchah Ubaruch peribit Yeshua Miriam hakedosha em ha Elohim irpaleli bahadenu hachotim atahuvi yishat moteinu Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for being with us, and please join us again next week for Salvation is from the Jews. That's all for now. Thank you. Goodbye from Roy Shoman and Louis Perez. Thanks and goodbye.